and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 5.5, East African Christianity. Hello and welcome back to Musings on History. Today's episode is the fifth installment in a series about the history of Christianity. So far, I've covered the various origins of monotheism and Judaism in particular, how first to fourth century AD Roman politics essentially created the mythology of Jesus, the main sects of Christianity leading up to the early Middle Ages, and most recently, how the rise of Islam affected the Christian states. This episode, I will be focused on the history of Christianity in East Africa, specifically in Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Egypt. Chapter one, from Kush to Christ. So I feel like I haven't talked as much about pre-colonial African and Middle Eastern Christianity as I should have in those last two episodes, aside from mentioning that the Coptic Christians of Egypt initially preferred the invading Umayyad Muslims to the Aryan and Nicene Christians and that the prophet Muhammad sent his earliest followers to Aksumite Ethiopia in the Hegira while he solidified his base of power in Medina. So I decided to dedicate this episode to East African Christianity and discuss how Oriental Orthodox Christians in East Africa not only managed to survive the Islamization of East Africa, but also how they used religion to consolidate into empires and construct national identities based around their Christian religion. Eritrea, Djibouti, and northern Ethiopia are located in what the ancient Egyptians called Punt, which means land of the gods. Over time, Punt land became part of the kingdom of Kush in the lands of Nubia, directly north of Punt. The early Kushite kingdom came under the control of New Kingdom Egypt, but after the disintegration of New Kingdom Egypt and the Great Bronze Age collapse, the Kushites established a kingdom in Napata, albeit one that kept some Egyptian traditions such as the Egyptian pantheon of gods with special reverence to Amun and Ra. The Kushites then ruled Egypt and Puntland during the third intermediate period until the invasion of the Assyrians. And following that, the Kushite imperial capital was located at Meroe and the Greeks called the land Ethiopia. For the next 600 years, northern Nubia was controlled by the Hellenistic Ptolemies and then the Romans, and a 30-mile buffer zone called the Tria Contashinos marked the boundary between Roman-controlled Egypt and Meroe in southern Nubia and Puntland. It was located between the first and second cataracts of the Nile. There's a famous story about a Kandake or queen of Kush named Amina Rainus, who was blind in one eye. Amina Rainus reigned from 40 BC to 10 BC, and during her reign, Kush engaged in a war with the Romans that lasted five years. While conventional history tells us that the Romans attacked the Kushites first, both the Roman record and the Quasar Ibrim 1420 stela of Meroe say that the Kushites attacked first, while the Roman prefect of Egypt alias Gallus, was absent on a campaign in Arabia in 25 BC. 
Aminarinus and her son, Prince Akinadad, captured several Roman forts in 24 BC and defeated the Roman forces at Syene and Phile, where Prince Akinadad died. She famously buried the head of Caesar Augustus at Meroe, which she buried underneath the steps of a temple dedicated to the Meroitic goddess of victory. The head was found in Meroe in 1912 and now resides in the British Museum. The kingdom of Kush began to decline in the 2nd century AD, and by the 4th century, it had split into the kingdoms of Nobatia, Alodia, Mercuria, and Axum. In 330 AD, the capital of Meroe was invaded by the burgeoning kingdom of Axum, a mixed early Judaic and polytheistic kingdom that was located in present-day Eritrea and northern Ethiopia in the Tigray region. The kingdom began roughly around 80 BC in the city of Axum, and by the first century AD, the Axumite people had become a regional power due to their dominance over the commercial routes between the Roman Empire and ancient India. The Axumites eventually absorbed the kingdoms of Elodia and Mercuria and subjugated the Blemius kingdom and the Judaic kingdom of Himyar in southeastern Arabia as well. The empire of Axum was one of the first African polities to issue its own coins, which bore legends in Guise and Greek, signaling that Axum considered themselves equal to their neighbors in Roman Arabia and Roman Egypt, and also gave them an advantage in trade. In 338 AD, the emperor Azana was converted by the Lebanese-born Christian missionary from Mentius, and the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church was born. The kingdom of Axum became the first kingdom in Africa to adopt Christianity as the state religion, and the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church is the second oldest church in the world after the Armenian Orthodox Church, which is also part of Oriental Orthodoxy. Although Fermentius was in regular contact with the churches in Alexandria, the Alexandrians allowed the Ethiopian Christians a wide range of autonomy that contributed to the Ethiopians molding this new faith into a uniquely Ethiopian brand of orthodoxy. This is similar to how the isolation from Levantine and Egyptian Jews following the Exodus contributed to the Beta Israel Hamanot form of Judaism. After the Council of Chalcedon, the six Oriental Orthodox churches split from the Eastern Orthodox and Catholic churches over the nature of Christ. Tewahedo means united as one in Giz, and the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church maintains the belief in the one perfectly unified nature of Christ, i.e. a complete union of the divine and human natures as one, as opposed to the two natures of Christ's belief of the Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Anglican, Lutheran, and most Protestant churches. The Tewahedo Church had been administratively part of the Coptic Orthodox Church of Alexandria, from the Council of Chalcedon in the 4th century until 1959, when it was granted autocephalous uh, powers with its own patriarch by St. Pope Cyril VI, Pope of the Coptic Orthodox Church of Alexandria. Fermentius was instrumental in translating the New Testament into Gies and is credited with the development of Gies script from a consonantal-only script into a syllabic one. Giza is still the liturgical language of the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church, as well as being one of the liturgical languages of the Beta Israel. In Egypt, the old Kemetic 
pantheon gave way to a Hellenistic pantheon after the establishment of the Ptolemaic dynasty in 305 BC by Ptolemy I Soter, one of Alexander the Great's generals. During the 300-year reign of the Ptolemies, which ended with the death of Cleopatra VIII in 30 BC, the city of Alexandria, built at the mouth of the Nile by Alexander the Great, hence its name, became a center of learning and the arts and philosophy and all that good stuff. Alexandria under the Romans became a center for religious studies as well, and it was the center of many cults, including the cult of Mithras, which came from Parthian Persia, the cult of Isis, which was based in the ancient Kemetic pantheon, and the cult of Baal Hammon, which came from ancient Carthaginian mythology. Many of these cults mixed the stories of the Kemetic pantheon with the Roman state gods and created new Hellenistic gods like Serapis and Sebumecher, who later became the guardian god of Meroe. Roman Egypt also became home to a form of Judaism called Hellenistic Judaism, which combined the tenets of the Jewish faith with Greek philosophy. The main centers of Hellenistic Judaism were Alexandria in Egypt and Antioch, which is now Southern Turkey. Until the fall of the Western Roman Empire and later invasions of Egypt by successive Muslim caliphates. From Hellenistic Judaism, we get the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Bible from Biblical Hebrew and Biblical Aramaic to Jewish Koine Greek. And this Greek translation would later influence the early Alexandrian Church Fathers and the Alexandrian Rite. The Coptic Orthodox Church of Alexandria formed out of the Mayo versus Diophytism debate of the uh, Council of Chalcedon and resulted in a rivalry with the Greek Orthodox Church of Alexandria. The Coptic Orthodox Church is today in full communion with the Eritrean and Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo churches, but all three churches have been autocephalous since 1993, when the Eritrean church was granted autocephalous status from the Ethiopian church following Eritrea's independence. Following the invasion by the Umayyads, the Egyptian population remained mainly Christian, uh, largely due to the fact that the Umayyads did not extend the Ummah, which means community, to converts and non-Arabs. However, with the fall of the Umayyads and the arrival of the Abbasid and later the Fatimid Caliphate, the Ummah began to include non-Arab Muslims and Muslim converts, and Egyptians began to convert more often to avoid discrimination and paying the jizya. The more devout Abbasids, Fatimids, Mamluks, and Ottomans also marginalized the Copts in Egypt, and intermarriage between Copts and other Egyptians was so scarce that the Copts became a separate ethnic group by the 14th century. Coptic identity also became closely associated with Nubians who were treated as second-class citizens in Egypt. Historian Sean O'Sullivan wrote that a combination of repression of Coptic revolts, Arab Muslim immigration, and Coptic conversion to Islam resulted in the demographic decline of the Copts. In the 19th century, the British installed the Alawiya dynasty, and the position of the Copts improved under the Alawiya's tolerance policies. The jizya was abolished in 1855 by Said Pasha, and Copts were allowed to serve in the Egyptian military. Towards the end of the 19th century, the Coptic Church established Coptic schools, including the first Egyptian school for girls. In 1853, Pope Cyril IV 
founded a printing press, which was the only the second national press in the country at the time. The Pope established very friendly relations with other denominations, especially the Ethiopians, to the extent that when the Greek patriarch in Egypt had to absent himself from the country for a long period of time, he left his church under the guidance of the Coptic patriarch. The Theological College of the School of Alexandria was reestablished in 1893. It began its new history with five students, one of whom was later to become its dean. Today, it has campuses in Alexandria and Cairo and in various uh, dioceses throughout Egypt as well as outside of Egypt. It has campuses in New Jersey, Los Angeles, Sydney, Melbourne, and London, where potential clergymen and other qualified men and women study many subjects, including theology, church history, missionary studies, and the Coptic language. Once rivals, the Coptic and Greek Orthodox Church of Alexandria and Cairo now work closely together to preserve Coptic language and religion and heritage. Chapter 2, National Myths and Actual Identities After embracing Christianity, the Aksumite Empire expanded into the Arabian Peninsula in 525 AD when King Caleb sent an expedition into Yemen against the Jewish Himyarite king Dunuaz, who was persecuting the Christians there. The Beta Israel either migrated or were exiled by Caleb into the Ethiopian highland highland provinces of Simeon, now called Gondor, Wagera, Selimt, Segede, and Dimbia. And while most Western historical sources do not support the historicity of the kingdom of Beta Israel, also called the kingdom of Simeon, there is a consensus amongst the Jews of of the Ethiopian highlands that it did exist, and according to legend, began with a revolt in 858 and lasted until 1270, when the Christian Solomonic dynasty subjugated the independent highlands. The Ethiopian national myth called the Kibra Nagast, or Glory of Kings, says that all Ethiopians are descendants of Israelite tribes who came to Ethiopia during the Babylonian captivity with Menelik I, who was the alleged son of King Solomon of Israel and the Queen of Sheba. The majority of the Beta Israel consider the Kibernagas to be legend and that the Kibernagas was written in the 14th century to delegitimize the Zagwe dynasty and instead promote the Solomonic claim to the Jewish history of Ethiopia in order to justify their overthrow of the Zagwe. Most Beta Israel consider themselves to be descended from the tribe of Dan, who left the kingdoms of Judah and Israel shortly before the Babylonian captivity. This displacement from the rest of Jewry explains why the Beta Israel do not follow the Talmud, since the Talmud became the central text of rabbinic Judaism after the destruction of the Second Temple and the move from high priest-centered Judaism to rabbi-centered Judaism. The Hebrew Nagas also says that the Ark of the Covenant, an acacia and gold-covered wooden box, that holds the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, the Rod of Aaron, and a jar of manna, was brought to Ethiopia by Menelik with divine assistance, while a forgery was left in the Temple of Jerusalem so that it would not fall into the hands of the Babylonians and the Neo-Assyrians. Currently, the Tewahedo Church claims that the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion and Aksum, former capital of the Kingdom of Aksum, contains the Ark of the Covenant. I could make a Raiders of the Lost Ark joke here, but there's currently a a war going on in northern Ethiopia and 
people that have sought sanctuary in that church were massacred. So I'm not, I don't want to be insensitive. The lady, the church of Our Lady Mary of Zion has been rebuilt several times, most recently by Emperor Haile Selassie uh, of the Ethiopian Empire in the 1950s. The first destruction of the church was allegedly done by the warrior queen Yodit, also called Gudit uh, and Judith, in 960 AD. According to oral tradition, Yodit was the queen of Simeon and laid waste to the kingdom of Aksum and the surrounding countryside. There is not a whole lot of archaeological evidence for Queen Yodit, and many historians think that she is conflated with a Muslim queen, Gaiwo, who was also from Tigray and united with the Ottomans to attack the Ethiopian Empire in the 16th century. Personally, I think the Ethiopians would know their history better than some foreign archaeologists. So if they say that Yodit destroyed Aksum and that the kingdom of Simeon existed, I'm inclined to believe them. Dismissal of oral traditions, it kind of has a colonial undertone to it that I don't really like, especially considering that these colonizers had a tendency to purposely destroy pre-colonial artifacts. Napoleon, for instance, was so mad about losing half of his grand army in North Africa that he went around for months like blowing off the noses from ancient Egyptian statues and destroying Kushite and Meroitic steles. Then fast forward 100 years later, and now some big-nosed Outremer is trying to tell Nubians and Cushitic people that they never had kingdoms in certain places or what their queen's real name was. And that's just fucked up, obviously. Also, when they do find evidence that affirms the claims that these people are making, they try to discredit it, like in the case of the kingdom of Simeon and Eldad Hadani. Eldad was a 9th century Jewish merchant, historian, traveler, and philologist, which is the study of languages and oral history. Eldad claimed to be a Danite, meaning descended from the tribe of Dan, and said he was a citizen of an independent Jewish state in East Africa, whose population were descended from the lost tribes of Dan, Asher, Gad, and Naphtali. He traveled throughout Babylonia, Carowin, and Iberia, which is present-day Iraq, Iran, Tunisia, and the Iberian Peninsula, who at the time had large communities of Semitic Jews, and where he basically attempted to let the wider Jewish world know that his people existed and had their own halakot, which is Jewish law. Eldad wrote a narrative in Hebrew called the Sefer Eldad, where he describes how the lost tribes got lost, which was basically the Babylonian captivity. And he says, the tribe of Dan immigrated to the land of gold, Havila, Cush, shortly after the separation of Judah and Israel. The tribes of Naphtali, Gad, and Asher joined the Danites later. They have a king called Adiel ben Machio, a prince by the name of Elizaphar of the house of Elahab, and a judge named Abdon ben Mishael, who has the power to inflict the four capital punishments prescribed in law. The four tribes lead a nomadic life, and are continually at war with the five neighboring Ethiopian kings. Each tribe is in the field for three months, and every warrior remains in the saddle without dismounting from one Sabbath to the next. They possess the entire scriptures, but they do not read the book of Esther nor Lamentations. They have a Talmud in original Hebrew, but none of the Talmudic teachers are mentioned. Their ritual is introduced in the name of Yeshua, Joshua, sorry, who had received it from Moses, who in his turn had heard its contents from the Almighty. They speak only Hebrew. 
On the other side of the river Kush of Cush dwelled the Benai Moshe, encircled by the river Sambation. It rolls sand and stones during the six working days and rests on the Sabbath. From the first moment of Sabbath to the last, fire surrounds the river, and during that time, no human being can approach within half a mile of either side of it. The other four tribes communicate with the Benai Moshi from the borders of the river. The Benai Moshi dwell in beautiful houses, and no unclean animal is found in their land. Their cattle and sheep, as well as their fields, bear twice a year. No child dies during the lifetime of its parents, who live to see a third and fourth generation. They do not close their houses at night, for there is no theft or wickedness amongst them. They speak Hebrew and never swear by the name of God. Now, Eldad himself professed not to understand a word of Amharic or Arabic. And again, he wrote the Sefer Eldad in Hebrew. If he was actually a Hemirite Jew from Southern Arabia, which is what a lot of like Western historians tend to assert, uh, yeah, Arabic would have been his native language. And Amharic would have been his second language because the language of the Christian Aksumite kingdom that conquered and annexed the Hemurite kingdom from the 4th to the 10th centuries spoke Amharic. Also, his claims about the lost tribes becoming lost right before or during the Babylonian captivity syncs with the wider Jewish interpretation on the lost tribes. And the Ethiopian Jews not using the names of the Talmudic teachers makes sense because the Talmud did not become the authoritative text for rabbinical Judaism until after the Babylonian and Assyrian captivities, events that the tribes of Dan, Asher, Gad, and Naphtali would have missed because they went south into the kingdom of Cush. Several medieval Jewish rabbis also wrote about the Beta Israel, including Obadiah ben Abraham Bartanura, who wrote, I saw myself two of them in Egypt. They are dark-skinned, and one could not tell whether they kept the teaching of the Karaites or of the rabbis, for some of their practices resemble the Karaite teaching, but in other things, they appear to follow the instruction of the rabbis, and they say they are related to the tribe of Dan. So throughout the Middle Ages and into the modern age, several Jewish rabbis, archons, and historians affirmed Eldad's claim, including Rabbi David Ibn Zimra of Egypt in the 13th century, who compared the Beta Israel to the Karaites and said that if they wanted to convert to rabbinical Judaism, they were more than welcome. Then there was the Sephardi rabbi Ovadia Yosef, who in 1973 ruled that the Beta Israel were indeed Jewish and thus were allowed the right of return. Two years later, the chief Ashkenazi rabbi Shlomo Green affirmed uh, Rabbi Yosef's ruling. And in 1977, Israel formalized the Beta Israel's right of return. Despite all of this overwhelming evidence that Eldad Hadani knew what the fuck he was talking about and where the fuck he was from, pretty much every book or article that mentions him that I researched on this subject, if it wasn't wrote by, if it wasn't written by someone who was African or Middle Eastern, like basically if it was written by a Westerner, they said that he wrote a fanciful tale and that he was most likely from Southern Arabia, which is really disrespectful because, I mean, wouldn't Jews know their own? Like, how are you going to tell this man where the fuck he's from? It's crazy. Following the destruction of the kingdom of Aksum, the mysterious Zagwe dynasty rose to power. The Zagwe kingdom ruled present-day Ethiopia from approximately 900 AD to 1270 AD from their capital at Lalibela. The famous monolithic rock churches of Lalibela were carved during the Zagwe dynastic period 
during the reign of King Gebre Miskel Lalibela. The name of the dynasty derives from the ancient Gi's phrase Zi Aga, which means of the Aga, and is also said to mean opponent since the Aga were the traditional rivals of the Tigrayan and Amharic Christians. The Aga people are also a Cushitic ethnic group located in present-day Tigray and Eritrea, and while they're related to all of the Cushitic groups of the Horn, they're most closely related to the Kemat people of Gondar, who practiced an early form of Judaism, but now most of the Aga are Ethiopian Orthodox. Unlike the Aksumites, the Zagwe only maintained contact with Egypt and Jerusalem, and they fought the Christian and Muslim Amhara as well as the neighboring Somali sultanates pretty often. The Zagwe dynasty came to an end in 1270 when the Solomonic dynasty, led by Yakuno Amlak, defeated the last Zagwe king and deleted his name from the records. Although some say his name was Yet Barak and Wallow chronicler Gedachu Mekanan Hassan says his name was Na Akuto Layab. The Solomonic dynasty claimed to be the rightful successors to both the Aksumite kingdom and the Jewish tradition of the Zagwe dynasty with the first king um, through their descent from Mara Takla Hamanat, the first king of the Zagwe dynasty, who married the daughter of the last king of Aksum, Dilnead, she who was descended from Menelik and thus a member of the Solomonic line. So it's given a lot of Richard of York, third Duke of York tease with the way that the Solomonic dynasty stepped on the scene with like this impeccable lineage on both sides of the family tree. Except Richard never got to sit on the throne of Westminster and the Solomonic dynasty did from 1270 AD until 1974. Actually, the Solomonic dynasty is discussed separately from the Ethiopian empire because after Queen Zuditu I, no Ethiopian monarchs could claim uninterrupted direct male descent from Solomon of Israel and the Queen of Sheba. After that, the male line did continue to exist, but because Emperor Menelik II did not like his cousin, Dejamach Taigulat. I don't know if I said that right, but I tried. Uh, Dejamach descendants were pushed aside in favor of the female line, which included emperors Ayasu V and Haile Selassie I. Chapter 3, The Solomonic Dynasty. Ouch. The Solomonic Dynasty was closely intertwined with the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church. And all the monarchs had to be crowned in Aksum at the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion until the reign of Fasilides in the 15th century. The reason for Fasilides not being crowned at the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion was because during the reign of his father, Susianus I, Roman Catholicism briefly became the state religion of the Ethiopian Empire, and Fasilides financed the second rebuilding of that particular church. Susianos became interested in Catholicism largely due to the influence of Pedro Paez, a Portuguese Jesuit missionary, and he hoped that by converting, he would get military assistance from Portugal and Spain. Poor Susianos didn't know that not only were the Iberians extremely racist, even back then, but they also they hadn't even managed to reconquer their own lands from the Muslims of Al-Andalus. So how would they be able to help him against the Aromo and the Somali Sultanates? To be fair, back in 14, uh, 1541, Cristobal de Gama had led a military expedition to save Emperor Geladuos from an invasion by the Somali imam Ahmed Gragan of the neighboring Adol Sultanate. 
thereby saving the Ethiopian state. So Susianos was probably hoping that the Iberians would be able to do that again for him and sent Jesuit envoys to Madrid and Rome to plead his case to the king and pope. But he didn't mention anything initially about converting. In 1613, he attempted to send a mission to Madrid and Rome again, led by another Jesuit priest, Antonio Fernandez, and the plan was for them to sail from the port of Malindi in present-day Kenya all the way around the southern tip of Africa and up to Lisbon, since the Ottoman blockade had cut off every sea route through the Red Sea and eastern Mediterranean. The mission never made it to Malindi, however, because some Ethiopian Orthodox who were not in favor of it blocked their passage south. In 1622, Susianos converted to Catholicism, and if he thought he had a lot of revolts before, he had no idea what a big storm came after that. Although 100,000 of his fellow Ethiopians did convert along with him, far more saw his conversion as an act of national betrayal and of him betraying his Solomonic heritage that called him to be the defender of the Ethiopian Orthodox faith. His troubles were compounded when Pedro Pius died, and he was replaced by Afonso Mendez, who was not as patient or understanding as his predecessor, and who routinely insulted the Ethiopian Orthodox rituals, which the Ethiopians obviously felt some type of way about. In 1626, Mendez gave a public speech where he proclaimed the primacy of Rome and condemned local Tewahedo practices such as the Saturday Sabbath and their frequent fasts. He also roundly condemned the Jews and the Muslims wholesale, but the Ethiopians were generally only insulted by his condemnation of the Ethiopian Jews. Christians outside of Europe didn't always get along with their Jewish neighbors, but, and Christians in, you know, Europe clearly didn't. Uh, But in Ethiopia, the Jews were a political and economic force in their own right, and their history was essential to the legitimacy of the Solomonic dynasty. The most serious threat came from within Susiano's own family as his brother, Yamina Crestos, a eunuch named Kefla Wahad and Susiano's brother-in-law, Julius, first attempted to assassinate him and then started a revolt calling to all those who were friends to the Alexandrian faith. Susiano's had to double back to Ethiopia cutting his campaign against the Fung Sultanate short, and he killed Julius. Yemena Christos held out for a little while longer in Gojim, but eventually he was captured and brought to Susiano's camp in Dankas, where he was tried and sentenced to banishment. Susiano's biggest challenge was against the Aga in Lasta. None of the Aga had converted, and when they found out Susiano's did, It was tantamount to abdication, since one could not be the emperor of an Ethiopian kingdom if he did not observe the faith of his forefathers. In his first campaign against the Aga, Susianos took very heavy losses, including his son-in-law, and when attempting to launch a second expedition, he found his troops so dispirited that he relented and allowed them to observe the traditional Wednesday fast which brought rebuke from the Catholic Church, and Susianos tried to defend his decision. His troops reached the position of Melka Crestos, um, who was Susianos' cousin that the Aga had chosen as a replacement emperor, but Susianos' troops were defeated in a very bloody ambush and became mutinous afterward. By this time, Susianos' son Facilitas had joined the campaign and told Susianos that if his side won the battle, he should call off the Catholicism campaign 
and returned Ethiopia back to their brand of orthodoxy. Uh, however, Melka Crestos had already descended from Lasta with 25,000 men spoiling for a fight and a fight they did get. On 26 July 1631, the two armies met on a field near Lasta and by the end of the day, 8,000 of the rebels were dead and Melka Crestos had fled from the field. Upon viewing the battlefield, Fasilidis is reported to have said, these men who you see slaughtered on the ground were neither pagans nor Mohammedans at whose deaths you should rejoice. They were Christians, lately your subjects and your countrymen, some of them your relations. This is not victory, which is gained over ourselves. And killing these, you drive the sword into your own entrails. How many men have you slaughtered? How many more have you to kill? We have become a proverb, even among the pagans and Moors, for carrying on this war and apostatizing, as they say, from the faith of our ancestors. On 14 June 1632, Susianos made a declaration that said, any Ethiopian who wanted to remain Catholic was free to do so, but he was out of the Latin game and going back to the faith of the Alexandrian Rite. After this declaration, Susianos abdicated in favor of his son, and Fasilides had the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion rebuilt as a symbol that the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church was back, baby. Shortly after taking the throne, Emperor Fasilides began expanding the borders of the empire westward. The various Muslim Somali sultanates to the east had long been the traditional enemies of the Orthodox Ethiopians, and the Ottoman Empire had cut off the Ethiopians' Red Sea access by the 15th century. The Oromo migrations had resulted in the loss of Ethiopian southern vassals and Indian Ocean access through what is now present-day Kenya by the 1630s, so Emperor Fasilides chose to expand westward into Beta Israel lands and Begimder. He founded a new capital of Gondar in the Gondar region, and this area is historically referred to as the Gondarine period. Over time, various regions within the empire became de facto independent, such as the Shiwa region, and the emperor became more of a spiritual and nationalist symbol, similar, similar to the emperor of Japan during the Sengoku period. This, was, this era was called the Era of the Princes. This all changed with Emperor Tewodros II, who reunified the empire and led a modernization campaign that was similar to Japan in the Meiji Restoration Era, except the Emperor of Japan didn't spearhead that effort himself. The spirit of these modernization campaigns was sort of in the same vein, though, as both Japan and Ethiopia felt like the only way to prevent European colonization from happening to them was to become more like the Europeans, at least technologically and militarily. In both cases, they ended up having conflicts with European powers anyway, and in both cases, they won some and lost some. Both cases also resulted in the country that was initially worried about being colonized becoming colonizers, which should tell you something about, you know, using the master's tools and all that. Tewodro's successor, Johannes IV, fought the British in Egypt as well as the Modest, uh, Modest yeah, of Sudan and died in glory in the Battle of Galabat in 1889. Emperor Menelik II is the ruler who's largely responsible for Ethiopia's modern day borders. He built the current capital of Ethiopia, Addis Ababa, and spread the empire's borders west, south, and east, covering previously independent and in some cases, largely Oromo regions like Kafa, Woyata, and Asa. Uh, 
he uh he's resided in the recently founded town of Addis Ababa and continued the policies of his predecessors subjugating many peoples and kingdoms in what is now Western, Southern, and Eastern Eastern Ethiopia, like the Kingdom of Jaffa, the Kingdom of Wolyata, or the Asa Sultanate. And all of these expansions, Ethiopian Orthodoxy was forced on the people, and this has had a lasting impression in Ethiopian politics today. The former Asa Sultanate was the only region where the people were not wholesale compelled to change their religion. Chapter 4 deals with devils and the seeds of Pan-Africanism. Beginning in the 1880s, Menelik II was confronted with the issue of Italian expansion into the Horn of Africa. At the Berlin Conference of 1884, Emperor Menelik was present as an observer, and he was there to convince the European powers to check Italy's encroachment into Ethiopia, which is a pretty terrible reading of what the whole Berlin Conference of 1884 was about. He was able he was unable to persuade the Europeans however and in 1887 a two year long undeclared war in present day Eritrea broke out called the Italo-Ethiopian War of 1887. This conflict ended in a treaty of friendship one that became undone because of a singular verb. I'm not kidding. There was one verb that has like a different level of meaning in Amharic than it does in Italian and the inability to come to a consensus about, you know, the severity of this verb, launched the first Italo-Ethiopian War of 1894 to 1896, which Ethiopia won decisively at the Battle of Adwa in 1896. The Treaty of Addis Ababa confined the Italians to Eritrea until the second Italo-Ethiopian War launched in 1936, which saw the emperor Haile Selassie and his family go into exile in Bath, England, not to return to Ethiopia until 1946. The modern-day Pan-African movement has its roots in the first and second Italo-Ethiopian wars. While in exile, Emperor Haile Selassie wrote letters to Black activists all over Africa and in the diaspora, including Marcus Garvey and W.E.B. Du Bois. Ethiopia's victory in the first Italo-Ethiopian war became a symbol of African triumph over European imperialism. In their defeat in the Second Italo-Ethiopian War, this time against the fascist regime led by Benito Mussolini, actually saw the U.S. using um, Italy's plight, I'm sorry, Ethiopia's plight, as propaganda to encourage African Americans to enlist and fight in the North African front during World War II. The U.S. was aided in this by uh, Emperor Selassie himself, who founded the Ethiopian World Federation or World Ethiopian Federation, I've seen both, in 1937 to spread the word about Italian aggression in Ethiopia and to raise funds to support the emperor and his family, as well as send funds and arms to partisans fighting and sabotaging sabotaging the Italians in Ethiopia. The emperor and the first president of the EWF, Prince Malaku Ibayan, Ph.D., met with three prominent African-American business leaders, pastors, and journalists from Harlem, New York, to discuss how the Black diaspora could assist their African brethren. These men were Reverend William Lloyd Eames, pastor of the prestigious St. James Presbyterian Church, Philip M. Savory of the Victory Insurance Company, and co-owner of the New York Amsterdam News, one of the first Black-owned newspapers in America, and Cyril M. Phillip, the Secretary of United Aid for Ethiopia. 
After meeting with the emperor in Bath, they decided to appoint Dr. Ban as the president of United Aid for Ethiopia, which he and the emperor decided to rename the Ethiopian World Federation. Several branches of the EWF were established throughout the Americas, including one in Kingston, Jamaica, one in the predominantly black Roxbury section of Boston, Massachusetts, one in Harlem, and one in Philadelphia. Black churches at this time were taking like special alms throughout the war to send to the EWF. Led by Afro-Jamaicans such as Marcus Garvey and Leonard Howe, Ethiopia's struggle also became part of a popular anti-colonialism movement in 1930s Jamaica, which eventually became the religion of Rastafarianism. After the war, Emperor Haile Selassie granted land in Shashimini, Ethiopia, into the care of the EWF for sons and daughters of African slaves in the diaspora who desired to return to the motherland, with a promise to provide more land as needed. The land was established as a perpetual land grant. In 1970, the emperor personally appointed Raz Marcus Selassie, a.k.a. Solomon Wolf, then the director of the EWF's Charter 43 in Kingston, Jamaica, as the administrator of the land grant. The Honorable, uh, sorry, Honorable Raz Marcus Selassie still maintains his post, living on the land grant, and along with the EWF resident country representative, can be reached at 011-251-4611-03925. And the reason why I just gave you that number is because when I called to find out like, you know, are y'all still a thing? Is the land grant? Do we still have right of return to Ethiopia? The answer being yes. Um, the lady who answered the phone told me to tell you all to get your vaccines, grab a mask, wash your hands and come home to Ethiopia. And I've never been one to refuse an auntie. So here I am just passing along the message. Chapter five, post-war Ethiopia and political upheaval. So throughout the political upheaval of the end of the 19th century and into the 20th, the Tewahedo church maintained its position in imperial society. In 1954, Emperor Haile Selassie built a new cathedral of Our Lady of Zion, one that was accessible to men and women as the original church, which allegedly holds the Ark of the Covenant, is male only. Pre-war, he had tried to modernize Ethiopia by abolishing slavery and replacing the Fetha Nagast, or the Law of Kings, with a written constitution in 1931. The Fetha Nagast is the legal complement to the Kiber Nagast, and it is a Coptic legal code first compiled by Alexandrian writer Abdul Fadail ibn al-Assal in 1240. An Aksumite king had it copied into Giz and it remained the law of Ethiopia until 1931. The Fetha Nagas permitted Christians to own slaves if they were prisoners of war or non-believers. And the majority of slaves were from the southwestern part of Ethiopia who were referred to as Shenkela. Prior to Menelik II's conquest of the Aromian kingdoms, the Aromo sultanates and kingdoms had exercised a great deal of autonomy during that period that is called the era of princes. However, by 1900, Menelik had completely subjugated Aromia. Post-war, the United Nations had established the Federation of Ethiopia and Eritrea in 1952 with the purpose of giving Eritreans the opportunity to figure out if they wanted independence or not. When the British administration left in 1952, political parties were established, one being the monarchy-backed Unionist Party that favored Eritrea becoming a province of Ethiopia. 
and the Muslim League of the Western Province, who were split between union with Ethiopia or a separate Eritrea, but who wanted greater rights for non-Christians in Ethiopia and for all Italians in Ethiopia to be kicked out of the country. There was also the Eritrean Liberal Progressive Party, who opposed any union with Ethiopia, and the new Eritrean pro-Italy party, which largely consisted of Italian settlers and mixed-race Eritrean Italians who had stayed in the country after the wars. The majority of the parties and their splinter factions were decidedly against union with the Ethiopian crown, and fearing that the Eritreans would choose the Sudanese or the Somalis or the Egyptians, or just plain independence, Emperor Haile Selassie dissolved the federation on 15 November 1962. The Ethiopian and Eritrean Tewahedo churches had been in union with the Coptic Orthodox Church of Alexandria since 451 AD. And in 1950, the Ethiopian Tewahedo Church was granted autocephaly by Pope Joseph II of Alexandria. The British, always giving a fuck when it wasn't their turn to give a fuck, simply decided to make the Eritrean Orthodox Tewahedo Church into a division of the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church because he didn't want to separate the, they didn't want to separate the Eritrean Highlands from the Ethiopian Highlands. The British had made a promise to Emperor Haile Selassie to keep the Highlands unified, but Emperor Selassie had to make them a deal as well to let go of the majority Muslim lowlands of Eritrea so that they could be included into the British Sudan. By the 1950s, the linguistic, religious, and ethnic differences between Eritrea and Ethiopia had been made clear, but the emperor went ahead with the dissolution anyway. His relationship with the other ethnic minorities of the empire was no better. Although there was no law banning the Aroma language, people who didn't speak Amharic were marginalized and Amhara professionals were moved into Aromo areas to serve in administrative positions, taking precedence over Aromo. The 1974 draft constitution of Ethiopia did include constitutional recognition of pretty much every minority language, but by then it was too late because the Derg had come to power. Chapter six, the rise and fall of the Derg and the war of Eritrean independence. In February, 1974, five people died after four days of riots against inflation in Addis Ababa. The emperor responded by promising a 33% wage hike in the military and a reduction in fuel costs. The whole world at this time was reeling from the 1973 oil crisis in which members of OPEC placed an embargo on countries that sided with Israel in the Yom Kippur War. The nations targeted were Canada, Japan, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, and the United States. And the embargo was later extended to Portugal, Rhodesia, which is present-day Zimbabwe, and South Africa. The problem was these countries were also the main suppliers of oil to like the rest of the world outside of the USSR. So everyone was kind of feeling the pinch. There were numerous mutinies in the military and the emperor again promised more reforms to the military and to the overall government, but discontent continued to grow. And there was a four day general strike that crippled the already weakened economy. The Derg, a group of low ranking officers and enlisted men in the military deposed Emperor Haile Selassie on 12 September 1974, and General Amon Mikhail Andam, a Protestant of Eritrean origin, was the provisional head of government pending the return of Crown Prince Asfel Wasson from Europe, where he was receiving medical treatment. 
Emperor Selassie was placed under house arrest, as were many members of his family. And on 23 November 1974, 60 former high officials of the imperial government were executed by firing squad without trial, including Selassie's grandson Iskander Desta, a rear admiral, and General Andam and two former prime ministers. These killings are now known as Bloody Saturday and were condemned by Crown Prince Asfo Volsen. The Derg responded to his condemnation by revoking their acknowledgement of his imperial legitimacy and declaring the end of the Solomonic dynasty. On 28 August 1975, the state media reported that Emperor Haile Selassie had died the previous day of respiratory failure. His personal physician, Dr. Azrat Roldais, rejected the government's version of events and was imprisoned by the Derg. Next, the Derg had to eliminate all other opposition, namely the communist Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Party. In September 1976, in an event known as White Terror, EPRP militants were arrested and executed by the Derg at the same time that the EPRP was carrying out an assassination campaign against competing Marxist ideologues and supporters of the Derg. The Derg then co-opted the Marxist ideology of the EPRP, declaring Ethiopia to be a Marxist-Leninist one-party state with itself as the vanguard party and a provisional government, and promised the abolition, abolition sorry, of feudalism, increased literacy, nationalization of hospitals and heavy industry, and sweeping land reform, including the resettlement and villagization from the Ethiopian highlands. Resettlement and villagization was of chief importance because the population density of the cities continued to grow while farmland was left untended, which led to several famines in the 1950s and 60s, mostly in the Tigray region. Mengistu Hali Mariam became the chairman in 1977 and, inspi- and perhaps inspired by Mao's cultural revolution in China, he launched the K-Shabir, which translates to Red Terror. The Red Terror began with Colonel Mengistu eliminating the opposition from within his own party. And on 3 February 1977, at a standing committee meeting, 58 Derg officials were shot and killed. Several of these men were rivals of Mengistu, including Lieutenant Colonel Azrat Desta, who was an avowed Marxist-Leninist who had convinced the Derg to adopt communism after taking out most of the EPRP. Apparently, Lieutenant Colonel Desta had helped Colonel Mengistu plan the purge at no point thinking that he would be one of the purged, which is kind of like, what's that guy's name? Von Schlieker. He helped uh, Hitler plan the, the Night of the Long Knives, and he was like one of the first people killed. So live by, die by it, I guess. He reportedly said, we are doing what Lenin did. You cannot build socialism without red terror. Aber, I would take this quote with a pound of salt and a dash of skepticism because it was told to a British writer named Christopher Andrew, who wrote two books with a former KGB agent named Vasily Matroykin, who was a senior archivist for the Soviet Union's Foreign Intelligence Service and the first chief directorate of the KGB, responsible for the training of new agents. Matrokin defected to the UK in 1992 as the Soviet Union was breaking apart. And as a gift to MI6, uh, he presented British intelligence with a treasure trove of information known as the Matrokin Archive. The reason that I say to take Andrew and Matrokin with some skepticism is because even some of the people within British intelligence called bullshit on the evidence presented in the Matrokin Archive. 
Nonetheless, having such a high-ranking member of the KGV defect to the UK was a PR feat in and of itself. And so although MI6 and the CIA consider half of the archives to be complete bullshit, Andrew and Matrokin were allowed to make a nice living selling exaggerated stories about the USSR's plots and plans in the global south. One book, The World Was Going Our Way, The KGB and the Battle for the Third World, blames USR, USSR propaganda for the, and I quote, ongoing crisis of anti-Americanism around the globe. Imagine. This book was published in 2008, after Americans had dropped napalm in Vietnam and then the secret bombing campaigns in Laos, after the Iran-Contra affair, after the assassination of Salvador Allende and the propping up of Augusto Pinochet, after the illegal invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan, after the illegal ousting of Jean-Baptiste Aristide in Haiti, after the illegal, and after the illegal invasion of Grenada and the extrajudicial judicial murder of Maurice Bishop. And Christopher Andrew actually believes that Russian Cold War propaganda is why the world hates the United States. And if that wasn't galling enough, he also wrote a book called The Defense of the Realm, The Authorized History of MI5, where he details how MI5 assisted in the destabilization of various former British colonies as they transitioned to independent and, in many cases, socialist self-rule. Like, he basically admits that the British and the Americans collaborated to kill as many African socialists as they possibly could. So, yeah, I'm calling bullshit on Lieutenant Colonel Desta saying, like, yeah, we have to have a red terror simply because it comes from a verifiable spook. Anyway, back to the Dirk. After eliminating his opposition within the Dirk, Mengistu set out to exterminate the EPRP. Then, following in Mao's footsteps again with uh, the Duquan, Mengistu organized an armed groups called Cabeles to seek out and kill members of the EPRP and their sympathizers. Just as it happened with the Duquan in China, not all of the Cabeles actually sought out EPRP members, and for most, as soon as Mengistu gave them the guns, they went off on their own paths. The EPRP also had infiltrated many of the Cabeles, as had the All-Ethiopia Socialist Movement, also known as MISON. On 22 March 1977, the Derg had enough Cabeles armed to do a nighttime sweep of Addis Ababa and perform house-to-house raids. The Cabeles weren't as organized or disciplined as the EPRP or the MISON, and so they essentially ended up committing saints state-sanctioned armed robbery and murder. Very few EPRP leaders were killed or taken into custody as a result of this raid. The incidents that followed were even worse, including the Berhanena Salam printing press incident, where a dozen workers were arrested for allegedly being EPRP members. Then afterwards released for lack of evidence, and then on the morning of 26 March 1977, nine of them were found murdered, including a woman in an advanced stage of pregnancy. The Ethiopian and Eritrean Tewahedo churches had largely stayed silent since Emperor Haile Selassie's death, having been ordered not to speak or make public memorials to him. In 1974, the Ethiopian Tewahedo Church was told that it was no longer the state church since the Derg was officially atheist. And so the second patriarch of the Ethiopian Tewahedo Church, Abuna Theophilos, 
believed that he was entitled to make all decisions concerning the church independent of the government, and so he appointed and consecrated three new bishops without consulting the Derg. These bishops were Abuna Paulos, who would eventually become the fifth patriarch of the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church, Bishop Abuna Basilios, and Bishop Abuna Petros. In May 1976, the Derg arrested Theophilos and the three newly consecrated bishops, which enraged the, Con- the Coptic Patriarchate in Egypt. The Synod of the Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo Church were ordered by the Derg to elect a new leader and Patriarch Abuna Teklehemenot was uh, elected to lead the church. The Coptic Patriarchate in Egypt, however, denounced the imprisonment of Theophilos and refused to recognize the election and enthronement of the new Abuna. The Coptic Church argued that the removal of Theophilos was not canonical as it was done by the government and not by the Synod of the Orthodox Church, nor had Theophilos abdicated. As a result, ties between the Coptic and Ethiopian Orthodox Tewahedo churches were severed. Abuna Theophilo suffered many indignities while in prison, but continued to administer the sacraments to his fellow prisoners and lead mass. On Saturday, 14 July 1979, on the feast day of the Holy Trinity, Theophilos was taken to the former palace of Prince Azraite Casa and was executed and buried there. Theophilos' remains were disinterred from the grounds of the former palace and reburied in full ceremonial state at the church he himself had built, the Gopha St. Gabriel Church in southern Addis Ababa, and was canonized by the Ethiopian Tewahewo Church and the Coptic Church in Egypt. In 1987, Mengistu had assassinated his former compatriots and conspirators, General Tafari Binti and Colonel Atnafu Abate, and formally dissolved the Derg. He then established the country as the People's Democratic Republic of Ethiopia, or PDRE, under a new constitution with the vanguard Workers' Party of Ethiopia as the state party. Although the Derg had implemented their land reform program in March 1975 under the slogan, Land to the Tiller, mismanagement, corruption, and general opposition to the Derg in addition to the effects of constant warfare with separatist guerrilla movements in Eritrea and Tigray, led to a drastic reduction in the general productivity of food and cash crops. It's generally believed that the 1983-1985 famine that struck Ethiopia was due to drought. However, recent scientific studies on rainfall patterns during this time show that the drought began in 1984 after the famine had already been underway, which means that the famine caused the drought, not the other way around. The famine hit Tigray and Amhara regions the hardest, with an estimated 1.2 million dead by 1987. The famine brought the political situation in Ethiopia to the attention of the world and inspired the Live Aid concerts of July 1985. The concert was set up by Oxfam and was supposed to give all the money raised to various NGOs working in Ethiopia, but a controversy arose when it was discovered that some of the NGOs were run by members of the Derg and that a lot of the money raised had been used to fund Mengistu's enforced, uh, it, yeah, forced resettlement programs where 50,000 to 100,000 people were displaced or killed. In the late 1980s, the PDRE lost its biggest ally when the Soviet Union under Mikhail Gorbachev retreated from the expansion of communism under Glasnost and Perestroika. 
Other socialist bloc nations such as Cuba, Yugoslavia, and Hungary also reduced their aid to Ethiopia, either because their own economies were struggling in the case of Yugoslavia or because of the human rights abuses that were being reported by many in the Ethiopian diaspora, such as the case of Cuba. In 1990, the Soviet Union stopped providing aid to Ethiopia altogether, which was a serious blow to Mengistu's regime. In 1991, the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, or EPRDF, captured, yeah, captured the city, the ancient city of Gondar in the Gondar region, as well as the Amhara region cities of Bahirdar and Desi. The EPRDF was a coalition of rebel forces who decided to join together to take down Mengistu. The Eritreans seized the moment and the Eritrean People's Liberation Front gained control of all of Eritrea except for Asmara and Asab to the, in the south by the end of 1991. Mengistu panicked and tried to implement some reforms, but it was too little too late. On May 21st, 1991, Mengistu and his family snuck out of Ethiopia into Kenya and later to Zimbabwe, where he received asylum by virtue of his friendship with the late Zimbabwean president, Robert Mugabe. The Eritrean independence movement had begun in 1958 when a group of Eritreans founded the Eritrean Liberation Movement, or ELM. The organization mainly consisted of Eritrean students, professionals, and intellectuals, and its core policy was to establish a separate federated state of Eritrea. On 1 September 1961, the Eritrean Liberation Front, or ELF, under the leadership of Hamid Idris Awate, took the independence movement from a political one to a military one. And in response, in 1962, Emperor Haile Selassie unilaterally dissolved the Eritrean parliament and annexed the territory. The ensuing Eritrean War of Independence went on for 30 years against successive Ethiopian governments until 1991, when the Eritrean People's Liberation Front, or EPLF, a successor of the ELF, defeated the Ethiopian forces in Eritrea and helped a coalition of Ethiopian rebel forces take control of the Ethiopian capital of Addis Ababa. In a UN-supervised referendum, the Eritrean people overwhelmingly voted for independence and the state of Eritrea was declared in 1993 and was acknowledged by the global community, including the provisional Ethiopian government that same year. Isaias Afwerki, the secretary general of the EPLF, was elected first president of independent Eritrea. The EPLF renamed itself the People's Front for Democracy and Justice, or PFDJ, in February 1994, signaling a transition from a military to from a military paramilitary to a political party, and Afwerki was hailed as a new kind of African leader by people such as then U.S. President Bill Clinton who was basically trying to take credit for the end of the Eritrean War of Independence and the end of the Mengistu regime in order to make up for his failures in Mogadishu in 1991. Needless to say, the Clinton Global Initiative doesn't really have the best reputation in East Africa. Afwerki and the PFDJ promised to create elected local judiciaries and expand infrastructure and education to all regions of Eritrea, just like Mengistu and the Derg promised in the 1970s. In reality, the PFDJ has made Eritrea into a one-party state along nationalist lines, but unlike the Derg, the government of Eritrea has officially recognized the Eritrean Orthodox Tewahedo Church, 
uh, Sunni Islam, the Eritrean Catholic Church, and the Evangelical Lutheran Church since May 2002. Other religions and sects in Eritrea have to undergo a, undergo a registration process. Afwerki is openly scornful of what he calls Western-style democracy. And he went on Al Jazeera in 2008 and said, Eritrea will wait three or four decades, maybe more, before it holds elections. Who knows? Chapter 7, Ethiopia-Eritrea Relations, the Aliyah, and the Tigray War. From May 1998 to June 2000, there was an undeclared hostility between Eritrea and Ethiopia over their borders, but by June 2018, Afwerki and the current Ethiopian Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, signed a peace treaty that defined the border and restored diplomatic and commercial ties between Ethiopia and Eritrea. On 9 July 2018, the two leaders signed a joint declaration of peace and friendship that ended the state of war between their countries and announced a framework of bilateral communication in the political, cultural, economic, and security fields. During the Tigray War, which began on on 18 November 2020, the Eritrean Defense Forces and the Ethiopian National Defense Force worked together to suppress the Tigray People's Liberation Front, which is an ethno-nationalist group that was originally part of the coalition forces that captured Addis Ababa in 1992, ending the Eritrean War of Independence and sending Mengistu into hiding. In 2019, the TPLF refused to join Abiy Ahmed's Prosperity Party because of Ahmed's intention to move Ethiopia away from ethnic federalism. And on 18 January 2021, the National Election Board of Ethiopia terminated the TPLF's registration as a political party, rendering the party unable to run in future elections. The Prosperity Party consists of most of the members of three of the largest political parties in Ethiopia, the Amhara Democratic Party, or ADP, the Oromo Democratic Party, or ODP, and the Southern Ethiopian People's Democratic Movement, or SEPDM. The Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front and these other three parties dissolved on 1 December 2019. And as those parties merged into the Prosperity Party, the former leader of the EPRDF, Abiy Ahmed, became the leader of the Prosperity Party, which is the current governing party of Ethiopia. In September 2020, the Tigray region held regional elections that the election board of Ethiopia declared illegal. Elections were originally scheduled for 29 August 2020 to elect representatives into the House of People's Representatives. But due to the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, the elections were rescheduled for 5 June 2021. On 26 March 2021, after accusations of human rights violations, Eritrean President Isaiah Sefwerki announced that the EDF would withdraw from the Tigray region. I found it kind of ironic that Afwerki would involve the EDF in the Tigray War on the side of Abiy's Ethiopian Defense Forces since it was his cousin, Meles Zanawi, who, as Ethiopia's second prime minister after the fall of the Derg, entrenched ethnic federalism in Ethiopian politics in the first place. But I guess they differ on that. The Ethiopian Federal Forces captured the the capital of the Tigray region, Mikhail, on 28 November 2020, after which Prime Minister Ahmed declared the war over. 
But the TPFL, led by Chairman Debrezion Gebremaiko, has vowed to keep fighting until the invaders are out. Massacres of civilians have occurred, uh, did occur in November and December of 2020 in Adigrat and Salam in the Hitsats refugee camp, which housed 100,000 Eritrean refugees, and in Humera, Mai Kadra, and Debre Abe in northwestern Tigray near the Sudanese border. And the Maryam Zion Church, which is the Church of Our Lady Mary of Zion, where approximately 1,500 people were killed as they sought sanctuary inside of the church. Some reports say that the attackers were planning to steal the Ark of the Covenant from the church as well. The Beta Israel have largely relocated to Israel after being banned from doing so by the Mengistu regime in the 1980s. In 1984, the Israeli government made a deal with General Mengistu to send his regime money and arms in exchange for the Beta Israel's safe passage out of Ethiopia in what is now known as Operation Moses. Operation Joshua happened a year later when Beta Israel were airlifted out of refugee camps in Sudan. And the last great aliyah happened in 1991 as the Mengistu regime was collapsing. General Mengistu made another deal with Israel, this one called Operation Solomon, to provide him with 35 million in U.S. dollars in exchange for the safe immigration of 14,000 Beta Israel from Ethiopia and asylum for some high-ranking members of Mengistu's government in the United States. Next episode, I'm heading back to medieval Europe where some popes and archbishops throw down with some kings and emperors to determine who ranks where and who answers to who in the hierarchy of Christendom. Join me next time for more Musings on History.